Hello and welcome to the Blogging Fringe podcast. This is your host, Ryan Price. Today is our seventh, no, it is our eighth episode since we have started back onto uh, Fringe Podcasts for 2015. And today we have a very interesting guest um, who you will learn about in just one second. Her name is Winnie Winglewick. And you are joining us from Colorado. Is that right, Winnie? That is correct. Wonderful. So, um, I guess, first of all, we should mention that you're bringing a show to Fringe, but then you're also involved with the production of another show that's coming to us from overseas. So maybe we can start with just talking a little bit about those two shows, and then we'll get into a little bit more about who you are. So let's start with Deviant Behaviors. Okay. Deviant Behaviors is a show that talks about the realities of being a masochist in the world of BDSM. It kind of sheds light on all the real stuff that's not in Fifty Shades of Grey, <laughs> shall we say. So that's basically what that show is about. I've been a member of the BDSM kink community for 14 years, and um, so it's mostly all my personal experiences. I also own a private membership dungeon social club, so I also have the perspective of someone who's been very involved in the, the kink community um, as well. So it's it's meant to be entertaining, but also enlightening and give people some more insight other than what they've just been picking up off of Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> right. Okay. Did you get a chance to see the show that was at the Woodshed last year? No, I did not. I'm familiar with the Woodshed. Or was it put on by them? There. I don't remember uh, I don't which one it was. put on by them. Right, okay. It was somebody who was a member of the woodshed and a member of the kink community out there. Um, and no, I didn't get to see that one last year. I saw a bunch of shows, but that didn't fit into my schedule. Okay. Uh, I'm just curious about that. Cause like from somebody who you say, you know, you, you are a m- owner of one of these spaces and then we have one here in Orlando. I was curious, like, you know, is there any like instant fraternity amongst, you know, that group of people that you just were like, Oh, well, you know, they asked me to be a guest star in the show, or I don't know what. Like, you know, in in <laughs> um, like improv, we do that all the time. It's like, oh, you're an improviser, yeah. Just get up on stage. It's cool. Yeah, I um, I am going to need somebody from the local Orlando Kent community to be part of my show. Um, I just haven't gotten far enough to figure out who that's going to be and find them yet. Um, I'm actually getting into Orlando a week early so that I can work with somebody to get their element of the show in um, because it was easier for me to find somebody out there than to bring somebody all the way from Denver just for that part of the show. Yeah, okay. Neat. And you you did a show last year that was called Black Stockings, right? The the part of it that I saw was really just mostly from your trailer, but um, in the trailer there was sort of a monologue about prostitutes. Right, yeah. Um, we brought Black Stockings to Orlando last year, and Black Stockings is written by Peter McGarry um, from Eyewitness Theater in England, and he is also the playwright for Darkwood, which is the show that I'm also directing for Peter for Eyewitness Theater this year, because it is a little less expensive to bring three actors to Orlando from Denver than it is to bring them all the way over from England. Okay. So, so that's a totally other show, but I guess... The reason why I was bringing up Black Stockings is, in case somebody saw it last year, they remember seeing it on the program or something mm-hmm. like that, they would maybe go, oh, right, I remember seeing that. But with over 100 shows, you kind of, it kind of all gets into the wash. So it's, I think it's helpful to yeah. remind people, like, hey, this happened. Yeah, Black Stockings is a completely different 
type of show from deviant behaviors. Okay. Totally. In in black stockings, I I you know I played a crotchety old you know brothel owner from England. Um, in this show, I am pretty much myself in three different manifestations. I, I the first part of the show is actually as a club owner, doing a, a portion of what I call Love Slave Explains It All, and then there's a comedy portion, and then there's portion that gets into the more the psychological and emotional aspects of being a masochist in the world of kink. Okay. So, is there any like thing that's in pop culture that somebody could go, oh, it's like this, but real and in the theater? No. Okay. Which is why I'm doing this. Right. <laughs> um, the majority of what's out there, I, I've spent the last couple of years dealing with all kinds of new folks coming into the community, coming into my club, which is not a bad thing because it's wonderful that all these people are being opened up to um, new experiences and new ideas, and a lot of people are very curious and interested about it. But there is so much more to it and to the lifestyle than is portrayed anywhere in popular culture. It's not portrayed this way in television or movies or anything like that. And, you know, so when people come into the community, they, they sometimes have a hard time wrapping their brains around the realities of it. Um, and so that's more about what my show is, is featured towards. Neat. Coming from an outside perspective, it's, it's always got to be challenging just trying to distill something down into a digestible form, right? Like a novel, you would think, has a good chance of doing that if it was written from the right perspective. Because well, this I, very long form, and you can get inside of right. someone's head, and you can sort of do all sorts of things. I'm not saying, again, Fifty Shades of Grey, pretty much anyone that I know that is involved in the BDSM community, they all hate it, right? I, I actually don't. Um, I, I have always been able to look at it. I, I read the first book. I couldn't get through the other two because it's just written for such a fifth-grade mentality sort of thing. But... Um, I've not hated the book for a couple of reasons. One, because it's given me a lot of extra business for my club, which is never a bad thing. But two, um, it, you have to look at it, it, the audience it was written for. It's written to be a fantasy book. So, I mean, no, you're not going to find a young 20-year-old something who's, you know, the a CEO of a multinational corporation who, you know, flies a helicopter and has a penthouse suite. And you're not going to find very many you know, college graduate virgins who don't have a computer or a cell phone and who are, you know, that sheltered, you know, so it's meant to be a fantasy book. But I do think that a lot of what um, Christian Gray attempts to say, he's the main character, he does say numerous times that he's out of his league. He doesn't know how to deal with somebody who's not like-minded. Hmm. And he attempts to educate her, which is not always easy to do. And I see coming both from a viewpoint of someone who's been in the community as a female who's been where she was, you know, I started off fresh in this community 15 years ago, a lot of her responses and reactions to me seemed normal. They, they were not unusual responses and reactions given the fantasy, fantasy situation that is being built up by this book in the first place. So I, for one, am not as harsh on the book as others are because I see it for what it is. I, I see it as a fantasy book but, you know, not a lot of people harp on it as being a book that, you know, glorifies abuse. But there are also many people who see BDSM as a means of glorifying abuse. And that's not what it's really about right. at all. If you really get into what the kink in BDSM is about, it is not about domestic violence or abuse. It's about consent and communication is the basis of it. So it's trying to 
get the people who have read Fifty Shades or have found other books and have now had their curiosity piqued. It's how do you get those people to find out what it's really all about and what elements of the lifestyle can they incorporate into their lives and then benefit from it? How can they grow? How can it enhance you know, relationships or lives or otherwise in a manner that's not like a fantasy book? Right. Okay, so given that, from the perspective of somebody who's putting on a theater show, I'll give you an example, right? We were talking to Martin Dockery on our most mm-hmm. previous episode that, as we record this, has yet to be released. And he was basically talking about how he doesn't give you every single detail, every single breath he took, every single sight he saw. You know, he weaves it into a story. So from that perspective, from the perspective of the theater producer, how do you then take the like stark reality of this thing that nobody understands is it treated more like a documentary you know is it treated more like a story like i I guess you said you have three different sections so is each one kind of approached differently yes the first section of my show is like i said kind of a an explanatory part strictly because i need people to understand the terminology i'm going to be using later in the show so if i'm in later in my show if i'm talking about subspace or subdrop or you know various terminology and stuff I, I give them kind of that in the very beginning and then I do I, I created the the informational part is a means of explaining how I have incorporated BDSM in my life and in my lifestyle as a coping mechanism as a way of dealing with you know issues that we all go through as you know children it is also of course for me, a, a sexual outlet, mm-hmm. you know, so there are so many different realms, but I, I've also, in a way, to try to incorporate it so that we're not building on the stereotypes that people already have, I'm, I'm trying to break those stereotypes down and give that. So it is more of a theatrical piece, but it is also extremely personal. If you had to ex- to describe it or if you had to compare it to any of the shows from last year's Fringe, it would be like my Brooklyn Hamlet. Okay. So it would be closest in comparison to my Brooklyn Hamlet. Right. At the risk of sounding jokey, like, is there a glossary in the program? Yeah, yeah, there will be. Okay. <laughs> like, some of this content is very serious, and we're like, no, no, you don't understand. And then, you know, there's still me wanting to, like, put on banter. But I'm I'm trying to find the boundary, oh, no, it's, right? It's very, I my way of presenting is to include a lot of comedy. I, like I said, I, I teach a two-and-a-half-hour class out here to my intro folks a couple times a month, and it's two-and-a-half hours long. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't sit through two-and-a-half hours if I didn't inject a bunch of humor into it. Right. So, no, the show is, is meant to educate but also be entertaining. So it's not it's going to be a, a heavy-duty kind of thing. And have you, have you put this show on for other audiences before? Put it on out here right before I go, but I haven't actually done this show, this specific show, anywhere yet. Okay, and that I think we looked is going to be in the purple venue, so yep. that's a very small, intimate venue. Everybody's going to be sort of like right up in your face, right? That's, that's exactly. I chose it. That was my first choice venue. Yeah, that's it. That's an interesting space for it for sure. Yeah, like the ones that I have seen there, that sort of like proximity to the performer and either purple or in red, it just really changes the kind of show you're watching Mm -hmm. can really have an effect 
in those small right. spaces. My uh, my theater here in Denver, Colorado, Dangerous Theater, is a very small space. I only seat 40 to 50 people, um, and the first row of chairs is just a couple feet from my stage. So I like the small, intimate venues. Great. Is there anything else that we need to know about that show before we kind of move on and maybe talk a little bit about uh, Dark Wood? Not really. I mean, it, it's it's meant to be the kind of show that hopefully people who are at least curious about BDSM or the kink lifestyle, whether they've read Fifty Shades of Grey or not, whether they're in or out of the kink community, I, I think people will find it interesting, informative, and entertaining. And I'll be also offering information, and uh, and I'm basically an educator all the time, so mm-hmm. if anybody ever has any questions, I'm hoping they feel approachable enough to ask me outside of the venue as well. Great. I think you already mentioned before, you're also directing a show that was written by someone else, and then I guess you're bringing some local talent to sort of like be the cast of it. So do you want to talk about Dark Wood? Yeah. Um, Let me give you a little background information first about um, the playwright and how I I came to uh, do this, is that um, I actually lived in Orlando way back when Fringe started. And when Mm -hmm. Fringe first started, um, I worked for SAC Theater Comedy Lab, and I was sort of roped into the Fringe when it started. So for the first 10 years of Fringe, I helped out in many different capacities, everything from training staff to working in the cash office to handing in advance sales. They used to have a weird kind of a ice cream cone, Krispy Kreme kiosk thing that sat downtown for pre-sale tickets. I sat in that for a number of years during lunch hour for people to buy tickets. You know, So for the first 10 years um, of Fringe in Orlando, I was very much an integral part of it. And through that, I got to, that is where my love for small, intimate theater and original works came from. And it was at that point that I met Peter McGarry with Eyewitness Theater because he would come over every year for many years from England bringing shows. And I moved to Denver in 2001. And a few years later, when it came time for me to open my theater out here, I had contacted Peter and told him I wanted to open it um, with one of his plays, A Time to Go Walking. And I did. I opened my theater out here in 2007 with A Time to Go Walking. And he and I have just cultivated a friendship over the years. I have produced a number of his plays um, over the years. And he gave me a play a number of years ago called Darkwood, thinking that it was not producible. Mm. In part because it does require three male actors on stage naked for nine minutes. Um, It is an amazing script. And I kind of held on to it for a couple of years and then decided that it really did need to be produced. And I did produce it two years ago. It is an amazing show. Peter came out from England to see it um, and was thrilled with what I had done with it and immediately said, we need to get this out on the Fringe circuit. Um, I wasn't too comfortable taking it out on Fringe. Um, immediately, I, I wanted to try. I had always been you know, in, in the running aspects of it. I had never participated in Fringe from a producer, producer standpoint, which is why I did Black Stockings last year. That was sort of dipping my toes in the water from the producer element of it um, to get my feet wet, find out how it works, and um, got through that. And Peter submitted um, Darkwood to a number of fringes across Canada and such. Unfortunately, the only one that we got into was Orlando's. Hmm. And first, it was on the wait list for quite a while. Um, And we really didn't think it was going to get in, but it kind of got in towards the very end. Um, and like I said before, Peter said, well, since you have done this before and it is cheaper, why don't you just put the animal, you know, get the animals together and bring them out? Mm-hmm. That's what I'm, 
Great. So, did you guys end up doing black stockings at more than one place? I mean, I know there's a Boulder Fringe, right? Yes, there is a Boulder Fringe. Boulder's, you know, 45 minutes to an hour outside of Denver. Um, and no, I've, I've done black stockings at my theater and at Fringe. And Peter originally did black stockings, I don't know how many years ago, at, at the Orlando Fringe. But Dark Wood has only been produced at my theater. I haven't done, I've never done anything at the Boulder Fringe, I guess because I think it's too close. Mm. I, I don't know. I just, I know that there are other folks out there this year who've got some stuff coming out to Boulder this year which is exciting to have them in my own backyard. But no, black stockings, we've never I've never done anything else other than Orlando so far. Well, that makes us feel special, I'm sure. Orlando. And yeah, I mean and and as you used to live here and you know, in an earlier conversation you had mentioned that you actually used to run a theater in Orlando? Yeah, I had in 1998 to 2000, I had a small space um, on Mills Avenue. It used to be in the building where Prager Gun Shop was and next to Flamingo Motel, both of which are now torn down in our medical buildings. But I had a small space called Performance Space Orlando that was really just a year-round fringe venue. I I was a rental theater at that point. I had my hair salon in the back of it, and I just allowed various groups and performers to rent the space out to do theater. So that was there, and that was the first theater that I had. And then, like I said, I moved out here in 2001 and opened up my theater in 2007. Very cool. So, yeah, a lot of this stuff, it's it doesn't predate me living in Orlando, but it predates me, like, participating in Orlando. That, you know, you can, you can live in Orlando and have no idea what's going on, and those are the people that say, there's no culture here, we don't, nothing ever happens in Orlando. And then as soon as you sort of, like, lift up one little rock, you're like, oh, crap, look at all this yeah. stuff, right? There's so, been a lot. You were definitely, you know, if you were involved in the early days of Fringe, obviously you were, you were very involved, you know, even in the 90s, which... Oh, um, yeah. I'm sure that, that that must have been a magical time, too. Right? I remember hearing about this stuff on the radio, right? Terror on yeah. Church Street and all these kinds of fun things. and Yeah. It's, um, you know, I was in uh, Orlando in January, and I went... Um, you know, downtown is so different. Oh, my gosh. Um, it's so incredibly different. And I, I miss, as much as I enjoyed having Fringe, you know, at Lock Haven Park, and I understand that it is so much nicer to have real venues and everything's close, I so miss when Fringe was downtown and, and it was in empty storefronts and there was an energy to it and they had the beer tent down there and it, it was its own animal. You know, not knocking the Fringe that it is now because Fringe is still amazing, but it was just very different when it was downtown. And I'll always miss that, but I, and I love some of the stories, and I loved sitting in the kiosk selling tickets, and, you know, I, mostly I just loved the artists. I loved getting to know a lot of the artists, especially the traveling artists, and that is really how I gained such an appreciation for original and new works. At my theater out here in Colorado, I only produce original and unpublished plays, and part of that is because... There is so much good stuff out there, yeah. and so many theaters don't want to take a risk on something new, and that's all I do. That, that's all I ever plan on doing. That's all I want to do. You know, part of that comes from, I, I will never forget sitting in the beer tent one night out on Church Street somewhere, and Peter McGarry with a couple of beers under his belt, and this is right after I had opened Performance Space Orlando, and he was telling me how powerful I was, and I didn't understand what he was talking about and I'm like I'm not powerful I just own a little theater I let people do what they want 
And he looked at me and he said, you don't understand. I prostitute myself to people like you to get my plays produced. Mm -hmm. And that's always resonated with me. So that's why I've always been dedicated to, to giving new works a chance. Very cool. Yeah, it's something that as the world sort of goes through these different cycles of pendulum swinging in one day more towards doing things that are going to sell well and then back toward the edgy and original things even even amongst like some of the more local theater companies like just to try and get butts in the seats but then there's you who in your mission statement says well we're only going to do new and original things like do you have do you have a hard time when you tell somebody, you know, you meet in a coffee shop, you say, oh, yeah, my, my theater, we're never going to do something that, that you've really, like, heard of that's sort of, like, internationally famous. Like, you know, we're never going to do Wicked or Rent just because they've been done elsewhere before. Right. Do you get funny looks or do you get, oh, wow, I want to check out more? You know what I mean? No, like, more, more often than not, I get people who are really curious about it um, you know because I'll mention to them I, I call it dangerous theater because it is a dangerous proposition to make a living doing theater and also because there's something dangerous about only producing new and original works but I think most people when I talk about the plays that I choose to produce it, you know they they it really does pique their curiosity in that they get to see something that they wouldn't otherwise do I mean right now I have a play running and it's a comedy and it's called Paging Dr. Hutzpah, and it's about a psychiatrist who can't stop having sex with his patients. Mm. His nephew comes in and wants to work with him and introduces him to his fiancée, who just happens to mention that she's a virgin, and he can't resist the temptation and steals his nephew's fiancée. And, I mean, it's just a really kind of farcical, over-the-top comedy, yeah. um, you know, and that's a lot of fun. Um, we have a play opening in a couple of weeks called um, The Couple Next Door, which is about swinging. Right. Um, and then, of course, I've got Deviant Behaviors and Dark Wood. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm not afraid of doing stuff with adult content um, or nudity. And in Denver, which is relatively a conservative market, um, you know, sometimes it, it can be um, interesting. I I've, can honestly say I've had people walk out of my shows because mm. it's definitely not what they thought it was going to be. But it's nice having a venue that's unique and, and is willing to take a risk. And I love it when the audience does get it and when the audience loves it. And there's something really satisfying about having an audience appreciate what you do and doing something new. Great. So uh, we might have skipped over this a little bit. Other than the bullet point that there's three naked men on stage for the whole show, what do we need to know about Dark Wood? Well, the most important thing to know is that the nudity really doesn't matter. Right. The reason that there is nudity in Darkwood is because the play is about apes in a cage. Two were born and raised in captivity. One was raised in the wild, had been captured, experimented on, and now they have put the three of them in a small cage, presumably for observation purposes of some kind. It is really a show about how where you are raised gives people different perspectives and knowledge bases. So the two apes who were raised in captivity have a much more limited knowledge base of the world and how the world works than does one who was brought in from the wild. The two in captivity think that the same people who give them food and water control the sun. Mm -hmm. um, they don't know where babies come from. They don't understand the concept of freedom. Um, in fact, there's an amazing, my, my, one of my favorite parts of the play is a discussion of what freedom really is. 
as described by a couple of apes. And, and the one who's been captured and used in experimentation, his goal, his singular goal is to get out, to escape. He wants to get back to his family, get back to his clan. You know, he, he does not want to be in a cage. He wants to be free. And an opportunity arises that gives them the chance to escape and be free. But it doesn't always turn out the, you know, the best laid plans of, you know, right. don't always happen the way you want them to. But it is an amazing dialogue about worldviews from the perspective of three apes. And when I produced it out here in Denver, I made a point of asking every audience when it was done two questions. One, I asked them if the nudity was necessary, and overwhelmingly people said yes. Two, I asked them if they even noticed that the actors were nude 10 to 15 minutes into the play, and most of them said no. Mm -hmm. It is so weird that it carries itself, and the nudity becomes secondary to it. It is just necessary because apes don't wear clothes, and there are elements in the second act where it's it would not be as effective if they were wearing clothes or even if they were wearing body stockings. Um, because, like I said, my venue out here is very close, very intimate. And, you know, so my audience would see if they were wearing body stockings or shorts or whatever. And we didn't want to um, to do that. Peter McGarry, the playwright, had a very interesting perspective of it when he came to see it. That being, very often you can see a play or a stage show of some kind and you can envision that that could also be done as a video or a movie or a film or a TV show that could be adapted to some point on right. not live. Darkwood is singularly a live stage play. So much of what it does would be so lost if it was tried to put into a film context. So this is really a show that has to be seen live to get it. And so what I'm hoping is that, you know, maybe in the beginning of Fringe, people will get lured in because there's nudity, but then they're going to realize it's just an amazing show. And I have just amazing actors that I'm working with right now to bring out for the show. You know, so I hope that the dialogue is less about the fact that they're naked and more about what the content of the play is about. It sounds great. I wish that you could, like, bottle that sales pitch and let everyone <laughs> listen to it because I think anybody who goes well, to the fringe, just... they definitely value something that actually has content. They're not just right. going to see, you know, songs and dances. There is plenty of that going on, right. but right. yeah, that, it sounds great. Yeah. It's another, you know, that's one of the minor challenges with dark wood is that it is a 90 minute show. It is not, I'm not billing it as a comedy because it's really not. There are some comedic moments to it, but it is really a drama, and trying to sell a 90-minute drama at Fringe is not the easiest thing. To, um, so I'm really hoping that, that people recognize what a groundbreaking piece of theater that this is and will take advantage of coming to see it. Yeah, I really hope so. And, and hopefully this will help. I will spam this podcast everywhere. Well, and I'm sure that the other people that have been on the podcast will thank you because hopefully people listen to this episode and then they go and check all the other ones out. My my priority right now is I'm doing all the out-of-town artists and everybody who is touring so that they get sort of like, you know, you, you, you tend to get a little bit of a short change when you're not the local people and you can't just invite your mom and your friends to come. Maybe right. you have a little bit of an advantage there. I have a few friends left in, in Orlando. Yeah. I'm trying to find them all again on Facebook, right. but haven't found them all yet. Yeah, so. Facebook, you know, it's like five years after you left, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, um, yeah, actually, uh, we should mention that Darkwood is going to be in the Brown venue. 
Yep. But after that, I think we might actually move on to the five questions that everybody gets asked. These are, this is my moment pretending to be James Lipton. <laughs> so here we go. Without what tool, you know, let's say, let's say maybe more specifically for, you know, running the theater, what's a thing that you really could not do your job without? Like, is there, is there one thing that you really have to have or one sort of like character trait that you really have to have in order to be able to run a theater for you? <laughs> Absolute insanity. Yeah. You have to be crazy to run a theater. You really do. You have to be absolutely nuts to want to do this for a living. It has to be a passion that you live for because that's got to be your main motivator. I, I do it because I love love what I do. I love working with my actors. I love working with the audience. Um, but you got to be a little bit crazy to do it all. It just made me think about something, you know, the, the Albert Einstein definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And then I can see the fringe performers handing out flyers. Like 300 people walk by, and they just yep. keep saying the same thing over and over again. Yep. And some people take it, and some people don't, right? Some people ask you another right. question, and some people, they don't even make eye contact. Yep. Oh, that's a good one. All right, so is there a particular person or some moment that really like inspired you to do what you're doing now the singular person who is responsible for all of this is terry olson yeah because i walked in to see a show at sack theater my roommate had won tickets on the radio and this is when sack had just opened on church street not too long walked in there and we saw the show and i think there was maybe an audience of 15 people and afterwards we asked terry if he needed help and he offered to take us and buy us root beer floats, and he did. And mm-hmm. next thing you know, I was volunteering there, and then I became volunteer coordinator and then house manager and then got roped into Fringe. It is truly all his fault that I am doing what I do now. Well, he is a very inspirational man, and I... He's amazing. I'm sure many people can agree with you at this point. Yeah. All right. Is there a particular place that you would like to perform or someone that you would like to perform for? Hmm. I would like to perform, I think, in the Edmonton Fringe. Yeah. I, I would love the opportunity to be at Edmonton. I, I've, I've, and, I mean, I think any of the Canadian festivals would be great to get into, but particularly Edmonton. That's where I would love to perform. about that one. If I could. Cool. This is an interesting one for you because you might be that moment for a lot of other people. But is there a moment in theater that really made you go, I didn't know you could do that on stage? That the moment when you you stop chewing your popcorn and you go, this thing has my total and complete attention and I want to know how they did it. Like, I'm, I'm just utterly amazed right now. Like, to me, three men playing apes in a cage on stage, that sounds like it's going to be one of those moments. <laughs> You know, um, I, I I haven't had moments, unfortunately, to be totally honest, 99.9% of any theater production I've ever seen is at the Orlando Fringe. And then I opened up my theater out here. I, I have no theater education. I have no theater background other than what I learned at Fringe and have basically taught myself out here running uh, Denver's Dangerous Theater. So I, I haven't seen a, a ton of other productions. But I, I think... Probably the closest thing that I have to that is I remember the first time I was working with a cast 
And it appeared to me that they all, it's like a giant light bulb went off over every actor's head on stage. It was during tech rehearsal or something. And I realized that they had all just magically transformed from the people they were into the characters they were playing. Mm. And I, I didn't really have that overwhelming appreciation for the fact that there really is a separation between the two you really the the good actors are the ones who totally leave who they are off the stage and they are totally somebody else on the stage and i i remember watching a show and realizing that that had happened to the entire cast almost simultaneously and to me that was a very magical moment and it doesn't happen with every production I do. It doesn't even happen. There are days when I get on stage and I'm not quite there. I can't leave everything parked at the corner. So to me, that was the magic moment, is is watching that transformation happen. Yeah. I'm actually in a very similar boat. You know, I've produced a couple of shows, but I've never, like, taken an acting class or something. I've now, at this point, read a lot of books and, you know, to talk to a lot of people and definitely seen thousands of hours of Fringe mm-hmm. and, and real theater. But, yeah, I... I just said, I'm going from zero to fringe producer two years ago, and it was one of the best decisions I may have ever made. It was great. Mm-hmm. So definitely, we will have to have a beer when you're down here and talk about being in a theater outsider. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then the last one here is, is there still something that you haven't done with your career that you are sort of looking forward to and you're saying like, as soon as I can do that, that's when I know that I'll reach the next plateau. I would have to say that for the next point of my career, I would like to have another theater in Orlando. I would like to do what I do back in Orlando again, if I can get that opportunity to happen. So I guess I guess then the question is like, what what brought you to Denver in the first place? And like, so then are you looking at coming back? Is that the idea? I came to Denver in the first place because uh, my ex and I had split up and he came out to Denver and my daughter didn't like mommy and daddy in separate states. And I had come out to Denver for the holidays in 2000 to sort of check things out and discover the theater community out here is large and that there wasn't as much snow as I thought there would be. So I, I gave it a shot. But now my daughter has grown and her dad's not here. I have my theater out here, but I miss the beach yeah. terribly. The mountains are funny, are, are pretty to look at, but I don't particularly love the mountains, but I miss the beach. So, yes, I'm actually um, looking at opening a theater in Orlando. Peter McGarry and I are discussing it, as well as a couple. Uh, there's another playwright that I work with who's in Orlando, Jonathan Vick. And so we're all discussing the possibilities of getting a venue back in Orlando, possibly by the end of this year. That is our ultimate goal. So, yeah, you might see a lot more in the relative future. Well, it's an interesting time to be in Orlando because, you know, where downtown used to be, like, empty lot building, empty lot building, now it's, like, building, 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 or, you know, building, building under construction. So... Right. uh, Right. Yeah, you're having amazing growth Even in some of that, like, outer neighborhoods, like, you know, the Mills area, you know, there Mm -hmm. were a bunch of things that got put on hold magically in 2007 and 2008, but they've all kind of booted back up or completed recently, and now even, like, the second wave of that is coming. So um, if you were here last year, you may remember, you know, the venue. They called it the Black Mm -hmm. Venue for Fringe. Oh, yeah. 
That's you know, an amazing space. Well, it's on the chopping block because they're going to yep. be putting condos there. So yeah, hopefully she's going to find a new space though. I I I think I don't know Blue at all personally, but from what I know of her personality and from what I've seen, I don't. I, I think she's probably going to find another venue location pretty quickly. Well, the thing I wonder is like, if they kick all the artists out of the place where the artists have made their home, then what's the next neighborhood we're all going to move to? You know what I mean? Like. That's a good question. I've been looking at that and trying to figure that out. Right. If you have any advice, I'll take it. Well, yeah, and I, I think it's it's something that I think about quite a bit. The new Performing Arts Center has opened up recently, and they were talking about having office space there, and now they're talking about having a hotel there instead of office space. So the office space was meant to support arts organizations, and now it's meant to support a luxury hotel. And a parking garage, which probably the parking garage is going to be useful for handicapped people and valet parking and that kind of thing during a show. I get it. And during the day, you know, any parking space downtown makes money. I totally understand. But what about that idea of the community water cooler? If all the artists have their office in the same building and they have their rehearsal space in the same building, it creates a scene that is really hard to replicate without that close physical proximity. So that's why I asked the question, where is going to be the artist, the the watering hole, other than like venues and bars and things? Like, are we ever going to have like a theater district in Orlando? Rob, I don't, you know, they're trying to build a quote unquote theater district in Denver and they there isn't any. Um, I mean, they have the Denver Center for Performing Arts here, um, which is amazing. And the Denver Center Complex is huge. It's it's actually um, second in size only to the Lincoln Center, you know, and it has its own thing. But there are so many small theaters scattered all over Denver that are all doing really quality work. Whereas in Orlando, and we don't have that kind of centralized thing either. You know, back when I was in Orlando, we didn't have a water cooler place then. And, you know, as far as I'm not a nonprofit, I've always been a for profit. One, because I'm just too bossy of a pain in the butt to want to have to deal with a board. Uh You know, so I like to do things my own way. But I I think that artists, it's nice if we can have a space or, you know, a place where we can. I think we all tend to work better when there's wine included right. or alcohol included anyway. So meeting at a bar is not a bad idea or the beer tent at Fringe. You know, growth happens and it's not something that's new to Orlando at all. I mean, it happens in cities all over the place where the artists come in, the new people come in, you know, the, the artists come in and create an area. And then all of a sudden it becomes, you know, kind of a posh place or happening place to be. And the city then takes notice of that area and, builds it up and then the people who started it get pushed out it's it's not a new trend by any stretch of the imagination but artists always find a way to survive that you know we find a way to do what we do because the majority of us like me do it because it's almost like a drug addiction Mm -hmm. there's a passion to it and we can't not do it so we're going to find a way to do it and ultimately you know cities can say what they will about wanting to support the arts the majority of them are going to want to put their money into some place like the new Dr. Phillips Center there, which is what Denver does here. They put their money into the Denver Center, um, and that's what gets all the attention. And then the smaller groups are left to fend for themselves. And I, that's just always going to happen. It's just always going to happen. I don't think there's a way to work around that. Um, Fringe is an amazing 
platform for most of the artists who are local in Orlando to have a say and get their stuff out there. But even so, you know, it's now 15 years later than when I was there, and there really aren't that many more venues available for artists to use in Orlando, which right. is another reason why I'm looking maybe create another space. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not happening. Art is happening and, and performance is happening all over Orlando in even some non-traditional spaces even during the year. So I, I think it is going to happen. I don't know that there's ever going to be a theater district because theater districts require more space than Orlando has available that's not being turned into condos or parking or whichever. Right. Um, and parking is a big thing. You know, it's huge. My theater out here in denver is in a warehouse district not near downtown and i'm definitely not a drive-by venue people have to kind of find me but i have free parking yeah. and that's a deal you know and you know so and i, I also have a cider company here. that's also a great perk they're going to niche and find their space especially those like myself and blue um who are in who are getting displaced i think they're still going to just find a place and do what they do so, so are people going to miss you when you leave Denver too? I, I, I hope the answer is yes. Are you going to miss it? I'm not. I'm, I'm not. <laughs> I, well, um, well, I have no intentions of actually leaving Denver. I just signed another five-year lease on my theater, um, so I wouldn't be closing up shop and moving. I would just be expanding and having a second theater location in Orlando. I have other people that direct for me out here, and uh, we're actually looking at doing. Um, the types of productions where we can actually swap casts back and forth between Orlando and Denver. So it wouldn't be where I would be packing up shop and leaving Denver to choose Orlando. It would be just an expansion process to um, add what I do to an Orlando market. Oh, great. Well, and I guess then you would fall into the category of creating jobs, and that's always a good thing, <laughs> right? Yeah, and I, I um, one of the things that's... Uh, that I do out here that I would do there is, um, is I pay my actors. Mm -hmm. I always insist on paying my actors and my staff and my crew and my playwrights out here. I'm able to, because of the business model I have out here, I'm able to dedicate 50% of my ticket sales to pay my actors and my staff and my playwrights. I'm probably not going to be able to be as generous out in Orlando, but, um, everybody will get paid and it will, you know, I'll be looking for folks. I'm going to be kind of scoping around a little bit and looking for interested individuals while I'm there for fringe and getting the ball rolling and finding out who's interested in doing what. Great. Fringe is a good place for it. I mean, I had my mini rant about there not being a water cooler, but for two weeks out of the year, we do have one for sure. Mm -hmm. So that's, it's definitely a big advantage for, for the local community. I guess I want to go back and I want to make sure that we have uh, sufficiently plugged your two shows so that people know the names and where they are happening. So do you want to tell us one more time? Sure. Um, Deviant Behaviors is going to be playing in the Purple Venue, and that is my show that casts um, light on the world of BDSM, specifically on why someone would choose to be a masochist. And, and it does, I mean, I used that word a couple times and never defined what that means, and that might confuse So A masochist is somebody who enjoys pain. So it is somebody who enjoys getting hit, beats, whichever. So um, that's what a masochist is. And then the other show that I'm directing for Eyewitness Theatre Company from England um, is Dark Wood, which is uh, kind of a post-apocalyptic play um, about perspectives, which has three apes in a cage who happen to be naked. Although that's not the most prominent selling point, but I can tell you that I do have really good-looking actors. So 
doesn't hurt. <laughs> well, and I think you come from the old school fringe it. where, you know, we, we, we tend to get like good years and bad years for this, but it seems like every yeah. show had a naked person in it. And then the next year, it seems like no shows have a naked person in it. And <laughs> this is going to be a naked year for sure. Yeah, I I don't know if there's other naked shows. I haven't looked yet, but I remember many many years ago when we were still using Church Street Station, uh, the Oops guys called the Naked Guy, and it created kind of a stink because Church Street Station um, said they were family oriented and didn't want any nudity in their shows. So mm-hmm. the Oops guys ended up um, swapping their show with another venue, um, which was really you know created a lot of nice interesting press um, for the venue, and of course their show did well, but. Um, anything the Oops guys does is generally good anyway. Yeah. Um, so, but that was always fun. So I what? don't think there's going to be a nudity issue in our venue this year. No. Now people might remember the Oops guys if you if you haven't seen um, Disenchanted, which they developed I and brought to New York. I flew to New York City for less than 24 hours in December just to see it when they opened it up over there. It's really great. So... I'm thrilled that they have a longer longer run off Broadway going right now. Yeah, I mean that was pretty much the last thing that they brought to Orlando, and they mm-hmm. hadn't been doing much in the intervening years. I think they spent a lot of time developing that show, but um, they did. Congratulations to them, I guess. And Winnie, it's been great talking to you. We're looking forward to having you for in both of your shows coming down. Where can people go and get more information about you and your productions? DangerousTheater.com is going to have information for both productions probably by the end of tonight. Okay. <laughs> I know they're not up there now, but it, it will be soon with you. Wonderful. And is there any other place that you post stuff, or is it pretty much on DangerousTheater.com? I, well, yeah, Dangerous Theater um, on Facebook. Uh, our regular page is Dangerous Denver's Dangerous Theater. Last year, I created a, a specific Facebook page just for Black Stockings, but most people ended up going to my other one, so I'm not going to create one specifically. I'm just going to run through the Dangerous Theater website and our regular Facebook page and Twitter. I'm on Twitter, Dangerous Theater. Okay, as well. Awesome. All right, and I just have a couple of housekeeping things I want to do, but do you have any parting thoughts for us? No, everybody should go see anything that they want at Fringe. Just go Fringe. I don't care what you see, just go. Wonderful. I love it. All right, please do uh, also, if you want to find out more episodes from this show, they're at bloggingfringe.com. We're also on the iTunes store and also now on Stitcher Radio. Uh, We have a Twitter page, Blogging Fringe, and Facebook, Blogging Fringe. And then we also have been recording the Orlando Fringe Crush videos that has its own Facebook page. We have actually this year a voicemail you can call, and you can record a voicemail, and I'll put it out on the podcast channel. Uh, The number for that is 407-906-9249. If you want to leave a quick review, if you want to tell a story... If you just want to say hi and shout out to all your friends back in Australia, whatever it is, uh, that can go out on the podcast channel. And happy Fringe to you. And thanks so much once more, Winnie, for, for being on the show. It was really great. Oh, thank you. Thank you for offering the opportunity. I appreciate it. All right. We'll see you in May.